On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. And Fitch goes now. Australia crumbling. Three for eight. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp cricket podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, a.k.a. Menas. And joining me this week, I have an extra special guest. For more than four decades, Jim Maxwell has called the cricket for the ABC. Since 1973, he has covered over 285 test matches, including over 50 Ashes tests, six tours to the West Indies and seven tours to the subcontinent and five World Cups. Unbelievable. Welcome to the show, Jim Maxwell. How are you? Andrew, it's very nice to be sitting in my own dining room with you having a chat. Surrounded by lots of vegetation outside the window, and one of those nice cool days as we head towards the middle of summer, where we're not going to to melt. Well, not completely anyway, but it is a typical humid Sydney day. A good day, you would think, if you're a, a good practitioner of it, to swing the ball. Yeah, exactly. But not many Australians can do that anymore. No, not at all. I was doing some research and read that you once called a game of cricket on your mobile phone. So this podcasting caper will be easy for you. We did have that experience in India on quite a few occasions when the the line either didn't turn up, as it were, or broke down. And there was one famous occasion in Nagpur when Glenn Mitchell, Peter Roebuck, Mike Coward and myself... I decided because there were a hundred technicians that seemed to be working on our problem, we walked away from our box and sat in the crowd. And I remember sitting with the police commissioner in Nagpur, and he became part of the show. We were just <laughs> handing the mobile phone from one to another and kept the show going. And a lot of people said that it was more atmospheric than having a good quality line, although. Uh, the the, the uh, apparatchiks at the ABC didn't think so. They thought if you know you can't get a good line, then we won't do it. But um, I think they um, they didn't quite get the flavour of India, um, <laughs> which they needed to. And you know that that at that time was very much part of, of what what happened. The famous line in India is when you're having technical difficulties and you turn to someone for assistance. Man come, man come soon. Man come, man coming, man coming. <laughs> That's and, not too good when you're trying to broadcast the cricket. Yeah. yeah well, you know, they don't like to disappoint. You don't want to lose face in India. So even if the man's coming tomorrow or next week, um, he's going to come at some time. Have you enjoyed your experiences in India? Uh, enormously. I've enjoyed the the passion for the game, uh, the, the ambience atmosphere at the... Uh, various grounds that we've broadcast from and some of the most memorable test match cricket I've ever seen has been in India, certainly in 2001 and the second and then the third test when we somehow managed to uh, lose a series that looked like being all one-way traffic after the three-day test in Mumbai. Don't think Uh, Australia's enforced a follow-on since then. Well, no, no, a couple, but yes. (laughs) Uh, Certainly... on that, that occasion, um, there was good reason for Steve Waugh to enforce the follow-on, given that India hadn't batted for very long. But, of course, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, there are some people around who say he should never have enforced the follow-on, but I didn't hear them at the time. No, either did I. Now, listeners, in this week's podcast, Jim and I are going to go through the week's cricket headlines, and then mm-hmm. we're going to talk about some of the important figures in Australian cricket that you've had experiences with over the years. And I think one of the great things about having someone like yourself still involved with the game is it's a link to the past and, and a link to, to keep talking about some names that might get forgotten about as time moves on. So There's uh, a rich history there in many ways, which I think we 
can easily lose sight of as we move on to the next generation and this kind of instant gratification, fulfilment that's about us in every aspect of life, it seems. It's, I was talking to my son the other day about playing club cricket on Sundays and when I was involved as an old Cranbrookian with the club, we were running four teams in those days. Now we struggle to get one a week on a Sunday. And I said to him, what is it with the young people? Why don't you turn up? He said, Dad, it's not that they're not interested in playing. It's just that young people don't like to commit. And, and this, you know, I call it a failing, but it's, it's just how it is. He said, they'd probably be happy to play at 11 o'clock on the Sunday morning, um, but Wednesday or Thursday, well, something else might come up, you see. It's, it's, it's dealing with this that, that is awkward, mm. which makes you think that as time rolls on, T20 is going to hold sway more than anything else in the cricket world, which will be a huge disappointment if that's the case because uh, Test Match Cricket is by far um, the most nutritious form of the game. I, I like in Test Match Cricket to like watching a, a good dra- dramatic play or something, you know, it ebbs mm. and flows and there's peaks and, and valleys, whereas a, a T20 is a bit more like a sitcom, short and punchy and you get a few laughs. You get a few laughs, yes. See, I, I was brought up on savouring the game by sitting in a nice spot at the SCG when the Shield cricket was on. We used to watch a lot of Shield cricket going back when there wasn't very much international cricket. I mean, we'd even have seasons where there was no Mm. international cricket back in the late 50s, early 60s. And uh, Tim Cohen, my good friend, and uh, myself, we used to sit there with a scorebook just to make sure we kept concentrating on what was going on. Uh, but you know, to to think of us sitting in the crowd today at a Sixers or Thunder match where we're supposed to be involved with the crowd in the and occasion, dancing. my God, uh, that, I'm sorry, I don't get that. Um, but you know, there it is. You know, it's like a, a Harlem Globetrotters or something. You've got to be involved as that's a spectator. Right. Well, that's what the kids want anyway. I know. Uh, I used to like scoring at the cricket as well, Jim, and a mm. uh, few people, few furrowed brows with other spectators who weren't sure what we were up to these days. I want to start this interview and talk about what happened in Cape Town because you were there when the ball tampering happened and, and in your reaction afterwards, you got quite emotional talking about it. I think you teared up on uh, the ABC radio. You said at the time, I do not remember ever being as disappointed in an Australian team as I feel at the moment about what they did yesterday. Why did what they did really rock you so much? It was as if those involved had no understanding or respect for the game. Uh, It was as as bad, it was as brazen as that, uh, that form of um, naivety, immaturity. Um, on on the one on one hand, with you know Steve Smith not being vigilant enough as a captain to prevent it from occurring, when he obviously must have suspected something was going on, and just the the lack of leadership, uh, the the lack of responsibility or or sense of what the game is about, and there was a, a total abandonment of um, the spirit of the game, of good sportsmanship. And the reaction from Steve and Cameron Bancroft when they turned up, as it were, to to take one for the team, I think Steve Smith's view was at the time, and that that was probably uh, the most Ill, ill-advised press conference he ever created. Um, my understanding is it was you know he who pushed that and wanted to get it out of the way, say sorry and and, and move on. But I don't think he realised the seriousness of it all when perhaps a an overnight reflection on how to deal with it would have been better than coming up before the media and, and giving them some baloney about um, what occurred. Even if he told the truth, uh, it would have helped a bit more than what Definitely. occurred at, at that chat. But uh, actually, jokingly, I sort of blame the third umpire for what occurred um, be, because of Ian Gould, who was up, up in the big house in the sky, had said to the two umpires on his walkie-talkie when they got Cameron Bancroft aside for a chat, and uh, like the naughty schoolboy, he had to empty his pockets and show what was going on. 
Ian Gould should have said to the the two umpires, no, 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 get him to drop his strides. <laughs> the evidence is in his jocks. Yeah, drop your and all would have been exposed. And That's we may right. not have, we not, not, not be at the point where uh, two of our best cricketers have a 12-month suspension. There would have been a penalty, um, but they wouldn't have been caught up in the, the deceit uh, that took place as a result of that stupid press conference. So that that's what kind of gutted me. And and you got to remember that there'd been a bit of lead-up in this in Durban, the incident on the stairwell between de Kock and Warner, and clearly what was said to Warner was out of order, but so was Warner out of order on the field in the kind of uh, send-off, not that he gave de Villiers when he was run out in that game, but he gave to the other bloke, Mark, Mark Rum, for running him out. But that kind of behaviour, and, and, and such, a, such a bad look, and it needed to be pulled into line by the coach, if not the manager or someone in Australian cricket. And I wrote to James Sutherland at the time saying, that this is getting out of order. And in my opinion, uh, Lehman was the one that needed to pull it back because he was basically, by his actions, condoning the way Australia was playing the game. And I still remember that afternoon following the incident in the stairwell uh, how ripe Australia was in the field, so much so that the effects mic was left open, the stump mic, and you could hear every expletive being uttered by the Australians towards de Kock, uh, who was still batting. Uh, it was late at night at home. Maybe a lot of people weren't following it. But it, it got to a point where I think for the, for the first time ever, I just said with whoever was sitting alongside me, don't have to comment. The expert commentary here, for what it's worth, is right there, <laughs> bang. And there was a taunt uh, going on between deliveries, or as Mitchell Stark, he was the, one of the main perpetrators with Nathan Lyon, going back to the top of his mark, you know, walking past the stumps, and you could hear everything. And I was I was surprised actually that the umpires took so long uh, to intervene. I, is this I in the first they're not, they're not policemen. This is the first Cape Town test. Uh, no, this is the Durban test. Durban test. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is the because I know the broadcasters first test. First ca- test. The broadcasters get a a feed of the stump mics, and sometimes that doesn't go through to the public. So well, what- they normally monitor it, so you hear it as the bowler runs in, and and then they fade it out. But I don't know that we had. A, a hotline to it or something yeah. in our radio box on the SABC, but it, it, it was there, just non-stop. Wow. They didn't take it out, and um, you could hear everything. And in, in the sort of six months since what happened in Cape Town, how have you sort of come to terms with what happened, why it happened, you know, your disappointment, I, I guess, surrounding Steve Smith especially? How have you kind of reflected on it? Well, I think um, it, certainly the penalty for what they did is seen by many to be, be harsh, but I, I can understand why it, it needed to be, uh, to give everyone warning that this kind of behaviour would not be tolerated uh, and won't be in the future. And, and I'm just hoping as we speak that, that there is a, uh, a reiteration, reaffirmation from Warner and Smith that they're not going to pursue this. I think this, the smartest thing they can do is talking to a, one of my advocacy friends, lawyers, the other day. <laughs> he said what they should do is just come out, reiterate, they're not going to appeal, not going to do anything. They're not going to back up the ACA's uh, call to reduce the bans. Just put it out there. And then maybe in the course of time, as we get towards the back end of the season, the board will relax the ban. That probably won't. But you, you've got to put it in a place where... This chat is over there, out of the way, because I'm sure it's a distraction for those who are currently playing for Australia. Uh, it, it can't be good for the brain to have everyone rattling on in the Players Association about uh, the fact these blokes should be playing. So what's that make us? Uh, we're not the be- best team, obviously. Uh, we're missing these players. But I think it's just unnerving, unsettling for the blokes who are currently uh, trying to do their best for Australia. And all of that's very unsteady at the moment. Fellas looking over their shoulder because they know they're probably only going to get a couple of games 
and if they miss out, they'll try someone else. There's the real revolving door in Australian cricket at the moment, turning over a lot of batsmen in particular. Far too often. And then we might get a few injuries on top of that. It'll make it even tougher. So it's not an easy situation, and it's not going to change because if and when those two players, well, there's three, but I'd say the main ones are Smith and Warner, obviously, if they come back, and in Warner's case, that's not guaranteed because not everyone wants him to play. They just feel he's lacked contrition in this whole exercise and his wife seems to be a stronger uh, spokesperson for him than him, the man himself. And uh, I'm, I'm concerned about the, the mental damage that's been done to both players uh, because of what's occurred and the fact that um, even when they come back, and you know, if they come back and play in the Ashes, they're still going to be, as far as a lot of people are concerned, cheats. That's what they're going to call. They're going to cop it in England. Absolutely going to cop it in England. So it's a very unsettling time for Australian cricket. Even if you had Smith and Warner in the firmament at the moment, uh, batting would still be shaky. And it's hard to tell when that is going to change. As much as we look at a Pekowski and a Sanger and Edwards, a Felipe, all these other younger players who are coming through, uh, uh, they're not going to be Bradman tomorrow. Do you think Steve Smith could ever captain Australia again after what happened? I'm, I'm sure he could, but you have to remember he's got a two-year ban. It's not just a one-year ban as the suspension as a player goes. So it'll be some time. But I, I, I think he has to demonstrate when he does come back that he, he's in charge of himself and his life and he can get on top of it because, uh, as I say, I, I think he's pretty shaken by what's occurred. And at the moment, I think one of the the best things that can happen to him uh, is that he gets away to the UAE and plays some cricket in another place. I'm sure he's enjoying playing for Sutherland up to a point. Uh, but, yeah, it, it's, it's just, just going to be an issue that needs to be resolved before we move to that stage where eventually you'd assume, after Tim Payne's stewardship as the captain, as the inter- interregnum, um, Smith will come back. But um, by then, who knows? Finch may have established himself as the captain in all f- forms of the game. Yeah, I think Steve Smith showed a lot of immaturity in South Africa. And I think you can sort of see mm. that throughout his captaincy at times. He doesn't quite have the worldly experience when you think about captains like Mark Taylor, Steve Waugh. You know, that bubble seemed to really, I don't know, filter out some realities of the world around him or something. It was just stupid. I'm afraid, very, very stupid, and uh, and that that's a it's a fair point, Andrew, and I, I think a lot of people have uh, recognised that, and uh, it's interesting how it is, it's all come around to the responsibility, accountability of those in charge of the game, uh, in terms of what occurred. I mean, the the the, the cap the captain can't take too much credit for his behaviour. Um, but those around him should have been better advisors and mentors. Mm. And we spend spend so much time in Australian cricket at the top trying to make sure you get the best commercial deal. But you want to make sure you look after the game. Otherwise, you're not going to have much at the end of the day. So as, uh, on the one hand, you know, Cricket Australia are now the wealthiest they've ever been. On the other, they've got to make sure that uh, the relationship with the players and with the public is 100%, and I don't think uh, they've worked hard enough on doing that because they've been distracted by making money. Well, I think then um, the the review into Cricket Australia that was released last week you would feel was pretty accurate in its um, appraisal of Cricket Australia. I think there were some truths there. It been hard for people to bear. But um, it, it's the... Well, I've seen it over the years, the, the, the arrogance on the part of some people who are paid and some who perhaps serve on the board. Not everyone, and there have been some good people in there, particularly Mark Taylor, uh, who has a, you know, an understanding of the game from where he's come from, and he's tried very hard to, to do his best, maybe pushing against the tide and uh, l- looking like he's been too much of the, the company man in the way that play negotiations was mishandled. Mm. On both sides, to be fair, but um, certainly from the board's point of view. And uh, I, I think there was a, a point in all this some months ago when the uh, the trigger point should have been obvious to those running the game when Bob Everett resigned. 
and cited as the reason for his resignation his dissatisfaction with the performance of the chairman, David Peaver. And, you know, went into a bit of chapter and verse about the MOU and negotiations with uh, Channel 10 and, and so on. And, and out of that, I, I couldn't understand the process that went on with Peaver being re-elected and then the release of this review. It was all the wrong way round. And it was, in fact, um, John Knox from New South Wales, I think, who orchestrated uh, the demise, as it were, of of Peaver by saying that, you know, he no longer had certainly the support of New South Wales, if not one or two other directors, uh, which led to his decision to uh, to resign. But it just gave the impression that perhaps there are a lot of people out, a bit out of touch with some reality here, and some of them are actually working within Cricket Australia. Uh, you, you only need one or two influential people uh, to give a bad impression. And I think that's occurred in the last couple of years. So um, since the last podcast, listeners, David Peaver stood down as chairman. Mark Taylor stepped down from the mm. Cricket Australia board. I see that Ricky Ponting and Simon Kadich have both ruled themselves out of standing for election on the CA board. So there's still a lot of changes coming at Cricket Australia. All right, let's move on now to mm. the week in cricket headlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim was over-commentating on this first one-day international between Australia and South Africa at the Perth Stadium, we'll call it, Jim. Mm-hmm. Uh, Australia were bowled out for just 152. South Africa won with 20 overs to spare and six wickets in hand. That's seven losses in a row for Australia in 50-over cricket. Have you ever seen our 50-over team look so lost like this? Well, their confidence has been shaken and their personnel varies because of um, injury and uh, you know varying form. Uh, so it's pretty hard to play good cricket when you don't have some continuity of, of uh, the playing line-up. Um, but you know, we're just not playing very well. And it tends to chase you when that occurs. You lose the toss, you've lost a key batsman just before the game, so you're short of batting quality, and then you play a few soft shots to get out after Dull Stain has, has done his trick with a new ball, as he can. But I, th- I think um, a, a lot of people who watch the game, who've been excellent cricketers, despair at the quality of Australia's batting mm. in particular, the lack of footwork technique. Uh, which I guess has is, is, is come about because of the T20 influence where your brain gets wired to going at the line of the ball and not playing a, a, a bit late and moving your feet as well as say, Alex Carey and batting at five probably had better footwork than most. I mean, Chris Lynn's an extraordinary talent, I realise that, and he can stand and deliver and hit the ball out, out of space. But um, the fact is he's got no footwork at all. And if the ball's doing a bit and you've got good... Good men like Rabada and uh, Stain operating with a missile in their hand, uh, he's going to be exposed, as I thought he was um, the other day. So I'm not sure where Australia goes in the near term up to the next World Cup about restoring its fortunes. But it seems pretty obvious at the moment that players like Smith and Warner are going to be sorely needed in that World Cup campaign unless we can find a few other batsmen who can string together some scores. So I don't know where that's going to put Sean Marsh because um, he tends to miss more than he gets a lot of the time and, and then he gets injured. And, and yet, His latest injury is rather embarrassing. A, well, like, an abscess so. on the buttock. Yes, I, I think it wasn't Kerry. Kerry, you said, well, no wonder he's, he's got an abscess on his buttock. He was sitting on it for most of the, <laughs> the UAE tour to Pakistan. <laughs> Poor guy. Uh, so they've called up Ben McDermott mm. to cover for Sean Marsh. And, and I guess this sort of goes to your point, Jim. Ben McDermott's first-class average is 28, mm. and he's made one century at first-class cricket. And we're looking at him being a limited-overs player for Australia. And, look, he's done really well in the, the domestic 50-over competition, averaging about 50, but it does sort of signal that our, our standards have really sort of dropped. It does, yeah. And, and there's, there's a gap unfortunately, at the moment, and whether it's because there's a dearth of talent or the whole coaching regime has lost the plot uh, in, it seems, having an, an attitude that, you know, batting is, a, is about seeing it and hitting it. Um, but it doesn't really work when the ball's moving. 
as um, I'm sure Australia will find out in the ashes next year when Jimmy Anderson's bowling and Dukes at them. I mean, where are the players like a Mark Taylor or a Chris Rogers who have an ability to survive? And build an innings. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so, you know, 50 overs is a long time. Sometimes I think Australia's got caught up in this, yeah. uh, seeing that other teams at 50 over cricket make these big scores and we... I think we just get ahead of ourselves. We we haven't. We need to build up some rhythm, some confidence. And do we have enough time to get the team together to mount a, a decent World Cup defence? It's problematical. Yes, at this stage, certainly in terms of the batting, I, I think the, the bowling could be okay. But then again, if you're not making enough runs, you, you, you you're going to be exposed. Even if you've got Stark, Hazelwood, and Cummins. So, look, there are some signs there that it could improve, but it's going to be inconsistent, sporadic, I think. So that'll be the problem when we get into a series like like the World Cup. Yeah, my worry is that we've given too much ground to other teams, so we won't be able to make up the ground. And also, I think the other teams will sense a certain vulnerability about the side that they haven't seen before in World Cups, and that can be enough in those tournaments. Yes, well, I'm I'm not sure where they're going to go in terms of their their personnel, but uh, clearly they're going to have to blood some players. Maybe McDermott's one who will come through, and, and maybe some others. But uh, there's not a lot of one day cricket to be played by Australia between now and then. Yeah, like there's eleven this, more matches. Or there's this mini series India, and then I think there are a few others. Um, so between that, even the T20 form. Uh, which were ranked higher than the other two forms. I think third in T20, sixth in one days, and fifth in tests. How the mighty has fallen. Mm. And and yet, you know when you know, you're talking about that form of the game, it it may be something that we'll end up excelling in above the other two. Given that in 2020, the we the world 2020 will be played here. All right, moving on from that first one day, the series continues on Friday at the Adelaide Oval. Are you going to that one, Jim? Mm-hmm. I'll be there and on Sunday in, in Hobart. Wonderful. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we see some improvement. Some bright um, cricket. Well, we just, just want to see uh, us get the, the best of the conditions and take advantage of them because there's no doubt South Africa winning the toss and bowling was a huge plus and we didn't recover from that uh, three for eight. Uh, we had the chance to, but uh, you've got to say, Stoinis and Maxwell got out to soft shots. Yeah, that's right. So uh, let's move on to this summer's test matches. So India are coming out here for four test matches. Mm. I know that Harsha Bogle is coming to commentate on ABC Grandstand. Mm-hmm. Who else is going to be commentating on the ABC this summer? Well, Ed Cowan will be part of the uh, commentary team and we'll have uh, appearances from Mitch Johnson, I think Alan Border. I think maybe Jason Gillespie, Dirk Nannis. There's a little bit of spread there around Harsha, myself, Alison Mitchell, and then Alistair Nicholson doing a test match or two. I think Clint Wilden, Quentin Hull. So we're moving it around a little bit, but um, uh, the experts will be mainly around Ed Cowan as, as the fixture and a few other fellas coming and going. Yeah, a lot of changes in the broadcasting setup since last summer. How's things going at ABC Grandstand? Well, I think they're going pretty well as far as I can see. Uh, Grandstand continues to put out pretty high-power performance on radio across the board um, with the coverage of so much sport and doing it well. The hope is that um, with a cricket, we can we can get into our stride a bit here and 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 find some new regulars. Chris Rogers actually is going to be working on the Sri Lankan series, and Roshan Abasinga from uh, Sri Lanka, uh, so they'll be part of the fold. But you know, everyone's role seems to change after a, a couple of seasons. Chris is now you know full time batting coach up there with the Centre of Excellence, and there are opportunities for people to work elsewhere with. A, and commercial TV, Foxtel and Seven and and uh, Macquarie and, and SEN Radio. Uh, so, yeah, that, that makes it a bit more difficult to, to keep people, I suppose, who may be either doing that or, or moving on to, to something else. Might even be moving on to a position on the board if, uh, <laughs> if they're <go>. tempted. <laughs> I guess um, one of the struggles for ABC Grandstand is trying to maintain the character of the team. You know, it's changed a lot over the last couple of years and some of the old classics have moved on, like Kerry O'Keefe. And Do you enjoy it still? 
Yes, I enjoy I enjoy broadcasting, but uh, you're right. It's good to have a bit of continuity of personnel, people you get to know a bit and you have a rapport with. But you know, uh, 45 years, I can think of a lot of people that I've worked with. <laughs> Come and gone. And you know, some I've only worked with for five minutes, but it's it's the nature of it. As as my dear old late friend Peter Roebuck would have said, just get on with it, Jim. Just get on with it. Also, um, we saw recently that Wisdom.com secured the rights for the Australia mm. v. Pakistan test. Do you think it's a shame that ABC don't cover as many overseas tours on radio? I mean, that's some of my great memories of cricket is, um, well, even that 2001 tour to India we talked about. I mean, I listened to loads of that on the mm. radio. It's, it's well, uh, the ABC, to be fair, did the last tour Australia had to India. And, and, you know, sometimes there's a combination of factors. The cost, have we got it in our budget to pay for it? Nowadays, more and more, the rights to do it are going up in price. Next year's World Cup, you know, we're talking talking num- numbers that uh, would make an eastern suburbs real estate agent go backwards. <laughs> so it's not going to be easy for the ABC uh, to continue to do a lot of this when they have to cut their cloth. And although they are trainee funded and they know how much they're getting at the moment, um, you still have to make sure you spend the money as, as well as you can. And, and, and that's an issue. And uh, clearly we're not going to be doing every uh, tour that Australia undertakes, but you'd like to think that we could pick the eyes out of, of what's best and, um, and, and put it across on, on, on whatever platform we're able to. So... It wasn't as if um, the ABC hadn't had a go at doing that series that was on uh, wisdom.com. It's just that uh, it was, it, as I hear it, it was very difficult to get to those who were offering the rights to, to come to the table. And by the time that occurred, it was too late. So it should be a exciting summer of test cricket with India coming, playing four tests. The Indian squad was announced since the last podcast. Some notable... Omission, Shikadarman was left out, but Rohit Sharma came in. Uh, India full of young batting talent with uh, Kohli, Rahul, Prithvi Shaw, uh, Pujara a bit older, Ajinki Rahane. So India and India also bring three spinners, Ashwin, Jadeja and Kuldeep Yadav. I mean, India will sense that they have a real opportunity to win their first ever test series in Australia. Well, they should. In, in fact, their pace bowling attack is much better than it's ever been. And... Um from Australia's viewpoint, if if they don't get Coley cheaply early in the series, they're really going to be in strife, I think, because there's, there's plenty of other batting, as you mentioned there, but he's the key man. You know, the, the, the old story, bring the captain down, which is what the West Indies always looked at with their four-pronged pace attack. If you're going to get the captain, then you, you're getting into the head of the opposition. So Coley's the key man, and if he gets away... I, I fear he's going to score a lot, lot of runs because, as a rule, our pitches are pretty good for batting and not very bowler-friendly beyond a bit of uh, new balls or reverse swing. Do you think they'll be a little bit more bowler-friendly this summer after last summer the, the pitches came under a little bit of criticism, especially the MCG and SCG tracks? Do you think they'll leave a bit of a tinge of green there for the first day and see if they can bring Stark, Cummins and Hazelwood right into the game? Uh, well, there are a couple of aspects to that. We're starting with a, a day game in Adelaide. Traditionally, um, a pretty good pitch there tends to have less grass on it with a red ball than a, a pink ball. And it just depends on the weather conditions. You know, If you get heat, then you normally get a, a surface that's better and better for batting. I'm not sure what it's going to be like in Perth. There's clearly a good bit of bounce and carry. doesn't seem to be much sideways in that. Uh, so that looks like a pretty good strip for batting, again, beyond the, the new ball. And then we're down to Melbourne, which is it started with a bit of life and the various pitches they've used. But they've obviously uh, brought some other grass in and they've left a bit more on, but will they do that for a test match that's supposed to go over five days? You know, groundsmen get worried about chief executives. And with our uh, batting lineup. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, the there's, there's Sydney, which is normally pretty good to bat on and it gives the bowlers something but it, it, so much de- depends on the on, on the weather at the time if you get very hot weather uh it should be a bit of a batsman's game but batsmen take 
far more risks nowadays than they ever used to. So that normally keeps the bowlers interested. But as I say, from Australia's point of view, they've got to f- somehow find a, a reliable opening pair. And, and I think uh, Renshaw is going to be in there somewhere at the top of the order with Finch, hopefully Kawaja. Um, maybe Joe Burns is a spot for him somewhere. He seems to have been pushed to one side despite a pretty good season last year in Sheffield Shield. Um, so the, 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 there are a few who can put their hand up, but uh, I don't think we've got anyone of the, the brilliance to dominate that is Virat Kohli. And uh, this this could be a, a huge series for him. It, it was last time he came, and it was recently in England. So his appetite will be pretty insatiable, I think. I sense you might be tipping India there, Jim. Um, well, they've never won in Australia, but um, I, th- I think this, well, they've got a, as good a chance as they've ever had of, of winning a series because uh, they've got a lot more confidence and they're playing playing cricket. It, it strikes me at the moment, unless something happens, uh, whereby they're, they're not going to be intimidated by Australia because they've sent a lot of these guys in the IPL and, and elsewhere and they can return fire, I think. So... Uh, I'm looking forward to a very competitive series, but I would have thought India would be the better chance of winning as we speak. It doesn't sound like Virat Kohli is intimidated by anyone. Mm. All right, that was the week in cricket headlines. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be back to talk about some of the the historical figures in Australian cricket that Jim has come across his many years of broadcasting cricket in this country. Uh, just before we go to the break, I just want to remind you, if you have time, please subscribe to the show on any podcast app. On a, We're on Android or Apple podcast app. You can find us on Google Podcasts or Player FM, just to name a couple of options. And if you have a chance, please rate and review the show on those apps. It's much appreciated and allows new listeners to find the show. All right, we'll be back in a moment with Jim Maxwell. Welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm here with broadcasting legend Jim Maxwell. And uh, before we go and talk about some history, just touch on the great performances in the Sheffield Shield recently. Centuries to Mitch Marsh, Pete Hanscom, Will Persisto, and yesterday, two teenagers for New South Wales, Jason Sanger made 117 and Jack Edwards, 18-year-old, made 101. It's great to see youngsters, young talent come up, isn't it, Jim? It is, and the other name we should mention, I suppose, although he's not playing at the moment, is Will Pukowski, who scored that double century a couple of weeks ago. But uh, alas, he's, he's out of action well, with some repair work to be done. He's, he's got a few mental issues and, and maybe a, a few concussion issues too. But he looks a, a very, very good player. I was speaking to Steve Waugh the other day to Waverley Oval where he was watching young Austin player against Eastern Suburbs. And um, he, in typical Steve Waugh fashion, said, you only have to look at him bat for an over and you can tell he can bat. So that that's a pity. And, and you know, he looks like uh, he's one of those uh, red ball batsmen. I'm saying that, you know, he, he hits the ball along the ground. He's not playing inside out shots over the boundary and the rest of it. Probably he could, but he looks a conventional, well-ordered, technically correct batsman. And that's the kind of player we need to be finding uh, if we can. But it's just great that some people are scoring runs. I mean, at the start of the season, no one was scoring centuries uh, outside that game in Perth. So um, Sanger, Edwards, hey, Kerry Felipe. saying Sanger should be thrown into the Aussie side. Is it? Are we in a position now where we're so desperate you think, chuck a, you know, 18, 19-year-old in there, much in the fashion of a Neil Harvey or a Doug Walters and see if they can make an impression? Or is that unfair on them? Um, I think if he, when, when he gets the, the second and third century, there might be more of a, an argument. But um, it's certainly given the lack of quality, consistent batting in Australian cricket, there will be an argument for someone like that pushing a claim, um, more so than perhaps there was for, say, a player like Maddinson who missed out on his chance a, a couple of years ago because this guy is, is clearly a good player. But I think he needs a bit more time out there before we start picking him in the Australian team. All right, so now from from the youngsters to some older 
cricketing figures. Now, Jim, you released a book, I think, uh, probably two summers ago now, called mm. The Sound of Summer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a wonderful book, and thank you for the signed copy I have here. <laughs> and one of the things I think that is important is that you provide a, a link to some of the icons of the past in Australian cricket. And, mm. you know, as the commentary has changed and the younger brigades come in, you don't hear some of the older names referred to as much. And I want to start with Alan McGilvray, who who was your, mm. I guess, mentor. Is that the right word as a broadcaster? Mm. W- what is his legacy to Australian cricket broadcasting? His voice, it was unique. It was a silvery, intimate tone and uh, it, it probably helped by a few elixirs and some cigarettes. It, um, it brought that kind of quality to what he was doing. Uh, he was very softly spoken at the microphone. He, he never shouted, but he had a great knowledge of the game and he m- taught me technique more than anything else in broadcasting and I'm trying to follow that because I think it, it is the, the better way of, of going about it. In other words, you take almost everything that happens with a sense of anticipation and from the batsman's point of view, as an example. So McGrath comes in from the northern end and Lara cuts and cuts well behind point for four. So you're always there ready to go and Lara's caught at first slip. Lara's bold rather than trying to describe what's happening as you see it, which means you're going to miss it most of the time. The crowd will beat you. So, so he, what, you want to be ahead of the game a little just, bit? Yeah, set, just set it up. Set the ball up. Set the whole thing up. Otherwise, you get into a bit of a, a, bit of a tang, tangle with things like, and this one, and that one, and this one, and that one. I also read that McGilvray developed an Australian style of commentary is different to the English style. He told you more about the game than English commentators tended to do, I think, going back when we look at the uh, the superb colour and language of people like John Arlott and some of his contemporaries. Uh, but um, my, my memory of listening to cricket on the radio before you ever saw pictures from the other side of the world in the early 60s uh, was McGilvray's voice. I waited for that because uh, he had the knowledge and the authority and he told you what was going on. He took you into the game. He got into the mind of the batsman and the bowler. It's interesting to, to watch Lily here. It's clear that he's trying to set, set up um, Amos on the offside. He, he just, it might all be baloney, <laughs> but you know, he, he took you somewhere and, and gave you um, an opportunity to be in the game. He wasn't just sort of reacting and then having a conversation. Too much of the commentary today uh, is about the conversation or an agenda and not enough about the game, what's happening out there. You can get into it. I'm trying to get this message across to a few people. but <laughs> I've know, just started commentary, so these tips well, are very important. Well there, well, there it is. You know, it, 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 It's not just a conversation that you're having in the pub with your mate for people to listen to because if you're in the car or wherever you might be, you want to know what's happening. And if you can give uh, the listener a, a sense of this tactical battle going on uh, around all the other colourful bits that matter, uh, then I think you're going to you're going to draw the listener in because it's a it's a very uh, intimate medium broadcasting cricket. I mean, you, you can go go for hours when there's not a lot happening, and then uh, you know you nip, nip off to the loo for five minutes you, and you missed a hat trick. Uh, <laughs> that's the wonderful thing about Test match cricket in particular that it can change in an instant and yet not go anywhere for some time. I just have a question. I read that you used to have a, a meeting in the morning with uh, Alan McGilvray that involved a six-pack to clear your head. How did you manage to get any work done with that kind of uh, breakfast? I think most of the people I work with had pickled livers. <laughs> well, John Arlett used to take a bottle of claret to the box, I think, when he used to commentate. was no, famous for that. McGilvray used to call them prayer meetings. <laughs> uh, and depending where you were and which you know, part of Australia... There was normally a call to arms at about nine nine thirty in the morning, and there would have been a, a couple of big four x bottles or KB or something there for you to sample if you were keen. And there was a group of people that were fairly bibulous, you could say. Uh, Norman May, Keith Miller, Lindsay Hassett didn't mind a tipple, but it probably waited till later on. And there was a group of people, including McGilvray himself, 
um, who were disposed to having a little refreshment. And during the day as well, going back uh, to that remarkable last part of his career when you wouldn't have known a bit like Norman May when he was on television and he used to have a, a, a cask of Stanley Leasingham or something alongside and he was enjoying that. But once the light went on, and when he was performing, he was totally on top of it. And McGilvray w- was like that throughout most of his career. But um, Takes you know, some he talent. Came, it, it came from another era. You know, newspaper guys used to do their stuff they were finished by 11 o'clock, and where would they be? Down at the pub. McGilvray used to be in the shoe business that his father had, and uh, I'm sure before the war, that's what used to happen. They used to go and do their business in the morning, and then you know the afternoon was free, so more often than not, uh, they'd go to the, the pub and have a few drinks. And I think, yes, that tradition lingered for a long time. <laughs> I don't know how you did it or were able to commentate after that. I don't either. I don't either. I have to say. But um, slowed, slowed up. Slowed up slowed up since those days. But he he was a hard taskmaster and he used to say things like, you'll never learn anything unless you're a good listener. It's true. That might still apply. Will you and Ed Cowan be having any prayer meetings this summer in the morning? No. Um, I think most of our, our meetings in that regard will probably be after stumps. And that's why uh, day test matches are so much healthier and happier than day-night test matches. What about the great Richie Benno? Uh, Well, Richie was in the box next door for a a number of years. Uh, And I I first came across Richie as a fan, as a youngster, but, um, what did I say, professionally uh, in 1975, before World Series, uh, I did a, a program about West Indies cricket. And I needed to have Richie talk to me about the 60-61. So he came to the studio. And that would have been the first time I'd officially met him. And I was surprised in that era that the ABC didn't get Richie to work for them. Maybe he had some other contractual obligation, I don't know. But uh, as you know, he was working with the BBC from about 1963. And it it always seemed to me that uh, he was the obvious person to have on the ABC he was back in Australia every summer and he wasn't working for anyone else because the ABC had the rights on, on television in those days. And then later he became, uh, he succeeded Sir Roden Cutler as the patron 12th man for the primary club, in which I've been involved for, for many, many years. Uh, which is, I played the primary club once. Isn't it if you got a duck at test level, you're eligible to... Or one day, or T20 now. Oh, right. So every time an Australian player gets out for a, a primary... A, Golden Duck, first ball duck. Each member of the primary club um, can donate $10. It's been an expensive year for you guys, I can imagine. There have been a few good fundraising years. (laughs) Uh, It's not compulsory, but in the primary club supports uh, the the disabled uh, in a a roundabout fashion without explaining all of it. But part of it was this marathon cricket event at the SCG, which we've been holding every year up until well, this year where things were a bit tumultuous out there. Uh, and uh, Richie arrived at the ground in the late in the afternoon prior to our, our dinner, and it was like the Pope arriving. Uh, he was so highly regarded by people. He, uh, After Bradman, or even including in, in a way, he's the most pontifical figure Australian cricket's ever had. Hugely respected, of course, as a, a player and commentator. Uh, as a sage, I've had a number of conversations with, with Richie and his uh, delightful uh, widow, Daphne Benno, who still continues to be part of the primary club events. But uh, Richie had a, a, a greater grasp, uh, I think, of the technique of television commentary than most. He was almost too quiet, but you know, that was very much the, the English understated way. And I think uh, I'm, I'm often reminded about the importance of silence on television and cricket commentary by the comments from the late Arthur Morris when I asked him one day, do you watch the cricket on TV? Oh, yes, of course. And what do you think of the commentary? He said, commentary? What commentary? I said, do you listen to the commentary? He said, I played the game. I can see what's happening. So I turned the sound down and I put on my favourite music. So... (laughs) 
it doesn't say much about the, the respect of the commentary, I suppose. But it's a very tough master doing cricket on uh, on TV, um, and that's why radio's so much more enjoyable because you can take the listeners everywhere and and not be constrained by technical gimmicks and by by what is being shown by, by the camera. I mean, your mind's eye is is the camera on radio. So, uh, but I think Richie got it right most of the time. That was to be understated, let the game go, and then when something needed to be said, say it. But now, of course, I mean, we've got three commentators on. Everyone's getting in for their two bobs worth, I suppose. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to malign the commentators because they're all very knowledgeable and they're pretty good. But uh, I think it's it's got too chatty for for the medium. Fine for radio, not, not for the, TV. And I guess looking at some of the players that you've commentated on, who are the, some of the favourite players you've enjoyed watching? I mean, mm. starting in the early 70s to now, through that great era of the 70s with Lily and Thompson, mm. right up through Warren to now, you would have seen some fantastic players. Are there any that stand out? Oh, there's, there's plenty. I mean, you can go back to Sobers. I saw quite a bit of him playing. Can High going back to that period, Clive Lloyd, Fever Richards. And of course, latterly, Lara is probably one of the greatest batsman he's ever played. West Indies pace attack, offspin of Lance Gibbs, Dougie Walters batting, taking on the opposition when he did, taking them down. A match-winning batsman, one of the great match-winning batsmen. Fellas that really left their mark on the game by their deeds. You like entertainers? Yes, to an extent. Not always entertainers, just the skill and quality of their craftsmanship. Ken Barrington, very underrated player, averaging 60 in test cricket. Um, Jeff Boycott, that's outstanding player, particularly 70, 71. Talk about techniques. There's well, a defensive technique. Well, just a very good technician and uh, a fine player on that, that, in that series particularly. And he worked out Gleeson and, uh, and then uh, Froggy Thompson. He worked him out too. There was a sign at the SCG and that test match played here where Boycott got 100 and another good score. And then someone was having a dig at uh, Froggy Thompson, who was a bit sort of clockwork orange fast bowler. And, and just the sign said, Froggy Thompson, you're the one that makes batting so much fun. <laughs> and that was regarded as Jeff Boycott's theme song the for that sledge. series. Yes. The good sledge? It was a, v- a very good sledge. Well, you know, we can we can talk about these fine players all the way through to the, the, the current era of Ponting and Gilchrist, the game-changing players. I mean, Hayden and Langer and Warren, without doubt, uh, the, the greatest cricketer of the last 20 years. That's a big call. Warney gets your rap as the greatest cricketer of the last 20 years. Well, given how difficult it is to bowl wrist spin and control it and be effective, uh, I, I think there's been no finer demonstration of a, a man's skill wrapped up in his personality, his combative, competitive personality. Will you read his book? Um, I haven't yet. No. Will you though? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get around to it. I've got a lot of books here, and I still haven't read them all. So um, I, I will get around to it because um, Mark Nicholas is a fine writer, and mm. he wrote that book. Well, listeners and Jim, thank you so much for your time coming on the podcast. Jim, mm. it has been so fascinating to talk to you. Uh, it's been a wonderful hour of cricket conversation. I, I encourage the listeners out there to go out and, and search out for your book, The Sound of Summer. Um, mm. it's, it's a fascinating read. and uh, They can listen to it too. You can listen it's to a, it. It's available on you know, one of those audio books. Do you uh, – yeah, spe- I read the whole book and Kerry wow. O'Keefe did his – forward so you can catch it wherever you dip in and find excellent well listeners go and find it it's a fascinating read well listeners thanks so much for downloading cricket unfiltered the news court podcast i've been your host andrew mensel you can find me on twitter at amenes a-m-e-n-n-e-r-s and jim thanks so much for giving up your time and having me in your home to record this podcast it's been a real thrill for me and i Hope we run into each other again at the various cricket grounds around the country. And you've done very well, Andrew. And uh, I hope you're going to the cricket or watching or listening to it with your mates uh, during this season because this summer looks like being well worth watching. Well, listeners, that's been Cricket Unfiltered for this week and we'll be back next week with another podcast. (laughs) 
Thank you.